Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the first of the season of me talking about or continuing our discussion, our learning about the Divine Liturgy. Up until now, we have, certainly before Pascha, we were exploring all the detailed steps as we were processing as a people of God to the house of God, to the temple, to the holy altar. All of the first half of the Divine Liturgy is dedicated to the procession of the people of God, coming together, the gathering of all of you who are scattered to get in different places, different places physically, but also different places in your faith life, that we are all brought together in a procession, and we process into the church, and we start the divine liturgy, not really at 10 o'clock, although that's when the first prayer of the church is made. Can anyone remember what the first prayer of the church is made at the start of the liturgy? It happened ten minutes ago. Blessed is the kingdom. Thank you. Beat me to finding it. Blessed is the kingdom. Is the first phrase, the first word, apart from the deacon telling the priest to get on with it. Blessed is the kingdom calls out the priest in response to the deacon, in response to the lay people calling us to prayer. Blessed is the kingdom. The kingdom is a set of promises. Could you just find me <coughs> the epistle, just say the first one? Wrong glasses on this morning. Thank you. The promises that God gives in the, uh, to, or Jesus gives to St. Paul, through St. Paul in his second letter uh, to the church in Corinth. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, says St. Paul, you are the temple of the living God. God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch unclean things, and I will receive you and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, said the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the spirit and the flesh, perfecting holiness in the awe of God. The promises. You are the temple of the living God. There is the temple of the living God, the building in which we are in. But you too are as human beings, as persons, capital P, persons, are temples of the living God, says the Lord. And I will dwell in you, promise one. The Lord already dwells in you, as the temple of the living God, by virtue of your humanity, by virtue of your <coughs> baptism, by virtue of you have been receiving communion. You shall, in a few minutes, be yet again reminding yourself that you are the temple of the living God. Remember on the holy table, the reserved sacrament, the body and blood of Christ. Then in a few moments after that consecration of the gifts, you have the body and blood of Christ in you. You are a living tabernacle. You carry that body and blood of God into the rest of your life. As you digest it and it becomes part of you, God becomes part of you. I will dwell in them 
and walk in them, second, second promise. He walks with us and in us. He is present to us in all of our trials and tribulations. Every time we suffer, we don't suffer with a God looking separately, allowing pain and anguish to happen. But he suffers with us and walks with us. And I will be your God, he promises again, and you shall be my people. And then in a moment more, he says, more than just being a God, he says, I will be a father to you. I will receive you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We are the temple of the living God, but we are also sons and daughters of the living God. We are family. And I promised when we started this series that I would go back to September the 1st. Remember September the 1st, the first day of the ecclesiastical new year blessed by the Patriarch of Constantinople to be the day of prayer for God's creation. And I promised at that time I would talk about the way in which this liturgy itself is part of that ecology or cosmology, of how we are ecologists by virtue of our worship here today. How does God act? How is it that we are here and it's quite useful that we actually have the conception of the John the Baptizer as being our celebration today. Because he is that bridge. The bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Between being cast out of the Garden of Eden into being received back into the Garden of Eden, into paradise. John the Baptizer is the forerunner. He is not God, but he is the promise of God. He is the last promise of God, the last action of God before the conception uh, by uh, Mary of Jesus as the incarnation of God into his creation. The Old Testament representing the preparation of God for his people. And when we look at the Old Testament, it's very important for us to read the Old Testament backwards, from Jesus back through to Genesis, so that we understand and can see the action of God throughout the ages in preparation for that one moment. So when we read and think about and hear about the Old Testament, we hear about the participation of God in his continued creation, affecting us, speaking to us, sending us signs, being present to us, sending us prophets, sent giving us kings when we ask for them, preparing us all for the incarnation, not just for the incarnation of God, but preparing us for our salvation. In the divine liturgy at this point, remember that we've all been processing, representing the Old Te Testament, the preparation for the gift We've come from our different places, our different places of love, our different places of experience of God, our different places of faith, our faith in God. We are different ages, different ages in physical age, but also different ages in our spiritual development. Our spiritual understanding goes from infanthood through to adulthood into being as the King James Version had been stricken in old age. 
some of us are stricken with spiritual old age. And that can also be a challenge, just as much as a challenge as being young in the faith. We have processed and we have come to this point in the divine liturgy where the faithful, the catechumens have been prayed for. The departed, those who have died before us, have also been prayed for. And the change happens at that point. In a set of prayers that happen in the Russian tradition and less so in the Byzantine tradition, but the prayers for the faithful. We don't often say these prayers, but the switch happens at the prayers as many as catechumens depart. Catechumens depart, as many as the catechumens depart, let none of the catechumens remain. And all those who have not been baptized, all those who are not the faithful, but are being prepared, they stay in and then everybody else is sent out and the doors are locked. And the deacon calls out, as many as are faithful again and again in peace, let us pray to the Lord. Help us, save us, heal us, and keep us, O God, by your grace. The word, uh, have mercy on us. We always remember that we try and translate that as heal us rather than a judge looking down on us. And there are two prayers that are said in those preparations. And I want to focus in on the first of those prayers. These are said by the priest as the deacon is singing over the top. These are the wisdom prayers because they end with the deacon saying, Wisdom, and then the end, the doxology. Well, the priest is saying in that first prayer in the liturgy of St. Basil the Great, You, O Lord, have revealed to us this day a great mystery of salvation. A mystery of salvation. The word sacrament, the Latin word sacrament, means mystery. A fog of ignorance, a fog of un not understanding. And technically we use the term apophatic. We don't know in our minds what is going on here, but we know that it goes on. We know that the salvation is happening. It's not something that's going to happen, but it's something that has happened at the Incarnation. It is happening in our hearts and shall happen at the end of days. But God has revealed to us the mystery of salvation. He has shown us how salvation works in his incarnation. And in God's incarnation, as Jesus Christ, he has given us the gift, the gift of his presence inside his creation, inside space and time. And the rest of this divine liturgy is a dynamic of the giving of gift and receiving of a gift and the giving back of a gift and receiving of a gift, the taking away of a gift and the return of a gift. And those gifts, cosmologically and ecologically, are very simple gifts. So simple that most of us take no notice of them whatsoever. So simple that people think they're not necessary. But they represent the synergetic collaboration between humans and God. They represent the work of humans acting on God's creation. 
We had this conversation just yesterday in London with uh, the deanery executive about candles. Our candles have beeswax in them. Why should candles have beeswax? Why can't we just go and get the clean paraffin ones? Much cheaper, much more readily available. But no, we have to import them from Paris or from Lithuania or from Greece to get the ones that have beeswax in. Why? Because you imagine what it is to be a bee. You are taking something of God's creation, the nectar and sugars from a flower, and out of it you are creating honey and you are creating beeswax. And that beeswax is taken by us and formed into candles that we can offer as a gift to God on behalf of our friends, on behalf of our family. And with that gift we're able to create something new. We can create light. We don't just come in with a, a handful of beeswax putty in our hand and hand it over. We make something of it. We make something of it more than just a beautiful candle, but we make something even greater in our ingenuity <coughs> as human beings by making light out of it. The light of Christ, but also our light. And the same is true of the Eucharist, of the thanksgiving prayers. The thanksgiving that we have is a great gift. We take very simple things, very ordinary things, water to start we take some grapes that God has created God has nurtured God has given us and we take some wheat from the fields that God has given us blessing us with finally some rain and we take those gifts that God has given us that have been developed throughout creation throughout history and we as human beings do something with it we don't create from nothing, otherwise we would be God. But we transform, we transfigure that which God has given us. We use our mechanical ingenuity to take water and wheat and grapes and water and we make wine. We take the particles of the air and the yeast that is present in the air and we add them to the bread and to the grapes. Nowadays we take it out of a sachet, we buy it in Morrison's or whatever. But if you know how bread is made by sourdough, you know that you mix water and flour and you leave it open to the air to allow the spirit, the oxygen and the particles of yeast that are in the air to settle on the bread. Children, if you've not made bread, Without yeast, go home and make your parents show you how to do it. It's magic. You take some flour and some water and mix it up and leave it around for a few days and it grows. And it gets huge. And the best thing is you then put it in an oven and add fire to it. Not, don't set fire to your house, but you use the flames in your oven and it turns into something that's yummy. Something that we really nowadays completely disregard. In the old days of bread making, bread was very precious, such that bread always had to be held the right way up. You don't turn bread upside down. No bread is wasted. You don't throw bread in the, in the bin. You don't even put it in for the recycling. 
it's always precious because it represents our creative act with God to make something more out of the flower and out of the water. And we do the same with wine. Many, many people say we shouldn't have wine in church. Wine, <coughs> alcohol is a dangerous thing, and it is a dangerous thing. So is too much bread, by the way. But what happens with grapes is when we mash them up and open them up to the air, the particles of yeast in the air ferment the wine and turn it into something new, something different. Our cosmology, our anthropology, cosmos being the whole of the universe, and anthropos mean, meaning us as human beings. Our story is of the collaboration in our Father's house with God. In the same way as when we go home as children and make bread at home, we are in our parents' house. We are being cared for them. We're not just sitting around with our feet on the furniture. We are making something with them. The whole of our story up to this point has been God preparing the way, preparing the world for us, preparing his creation for the incarnation of himself as Jesus. The rest of the prayer goes, you have counted us humble and unworthy servants, worthy to minister at your holy table. By the power of the Holy Spirit, enable us for this service, that standing uncondemned in the presence of your holy glory, we may offer to you a sacrifice of praise. What is a sacrifice of praise? Well, for many of us, getting out of bed on a Sunday morning is a bit of a sacrifice of our lie-in. But we also have to sacrifice a whole bunch of other things. To be Christian, to live in a certain way, to follow a certain person called Jesus Christ. And ultimately our sacrifice of praise is not our gift to God, but our return of the gift that God has already given us. God has already given us rain and sunshine, and therefore flour, and therefore bread. God has always already given us sunshine and rain and blessed us with grape that we can then make wheat. God has already blessed us with sunshine and rain and given us bees that can make honey that we can put on our bread and wax that we can make light from. God blesses us with a gift, many gifts. And we bring those gifts transformed and transfigured to church Thank you for those of you who made Prospera. Thank you for those who buy a bottle of Mavrodaphne wine on their way round the shop and bring that to church. These are gifts that God has already given you that you bring and give back to God. They are yet again transfigured in the divine liturgy at the Proscomedi as the bread is cut into pieces and you, pray, you are prayed for individually and if you haven't given your name in and the names of your friends and your loved ones, then from this week onwards, I expect every one of you, including the children, to come in each week, not with a big fat book that you wrote six years ago, but you pray and put the names of people that you want to pray for this week on the sheets of paper and hand them in. Okay, so don't write a bunch of names and then let it forgotten and say, 
we'll pay the priest to get on with that because believe me you're not paying the priest it's not something that's done on your behalf you participate in the gift of giving of gift so you come and you write down the names of the people that you want to be prayed for this week and next week that's a new list and the following week that's a new list and we pray for them this moment of transition between stopping our procession and standing before the holy table a space where we are both moving and continuing to move you imagine this was a massive church and we've all just surged in through the doors with a bishop and all the priests and all the people all surging forward and stopping tight up against the holy doors and the iconostas there's too much blue space here too much room you should be pressing against the iconostas eager to see god in his presence on the holy temple on the holy table we will receive a gift again in a few minutes the gift that we bought that's bread and wine is going to be given back to us in the shape of the body and blood of Jesus Christ and we give that gift back again by going back out into the into the world as tabernacles as the temples of God not for just for our own benefit of course taking the Eucharist is for our own benefit but we become those tabernacles we take God out into the community out into our neighborhoods out into our homes out into our places of work because we become as like unto God. And that starts at this moment of transition. The end of the preparation of God finishes with the gift. And it continues every time we see, every time we make a movement in this next 40 minutes or so as the rest of the Divine Liturgy moves on, it connects again. It becomes the gift, the idea of a gift particularly a gift of healing, but the gift of presence, the presence of God. Now, why do we do this? Why do we do all this all the time? Because surely that just makes church just a bit repetitive and a little bit boring. And it is quite important to be bored, particularly these days, because we have too much to do, too much distractions. And in almost in a way, the too much of the wrong type of boredom, the sort of boredom that doesn't go anywhere, the sort of boredom, boredom that results in nothing, except us feeling a little bit guilty about having done nothing for several hours. But the boredom that we have in, and experience in church isn't just a boredom that goes nowhere, it's a boredom that still has a movement towards God. We are still being swept along by the people of God we're being swept along by a tradition by as I described to somebody else a set of behaviors that families get up to when they've been together for a very long time and you are the family of God <coughs> you are a family that goes back tens of generations 2,000 years of family a very big family that extends across the whole of the world that speaks lots of different languages, has lots of different cultures. And what connects those people together as a family? Why are you the same as a small congregation in Japan, 
as you are a massive congregation in China, as you are a small, tiny little village in Russia, as you are a massive congregation in Latin America. Why are we all the same? Not because we are singing in the same language, but we sing in harmony. <clears throat> that we see the same ideas, the same images, the same colours, and we do the same things. These are habits of a family that's 2,000 years old, that has millions of members, and we all get up to more or less the same thing, year in, year out, doing the same thing repetitively. So that if you were able to put on this, a special suit and go back in time, you would go back and still see the same things being done. You'd still recognize the divine liturgy. They would come here and go, I don't understand the language. I don't understand all the details, but I know what's going on here. I can see what's going on here. I can feel what's going on here. All of my senses are engaged in something that I utterly remember. The church is repetitive, not because it forces a repetition on you, not because it's ritual. It's repetitive because it's habit. It's what we do. It's what you do when you get up in the morning. Think about the first thing you do every time you get up in the morning. Most people are pretty consistent in their behaviours. And when you have dozens of generations, millions of people all doing the same thing, that translates into tradition. But it's also a tradition of a story that communicates across different generations, across different cultures. A shape. Not that we hear the story, we do, we hear the story, but we can also see the story happening in front of us, but we're also acting out in the story. We are behaving in the story. If, for example, you have the tradition of not singing divine liturgy, you're missing out on participating in the harmonics of that story, the harmony of that story. Some of us might be a little bit discordant, some of us might even provoke the choir director to roll our eyes. But those who know their music know that discordant notes sometimes <coughs> resolve into harmony. We all behave differently, but ultimately we are playing in an orchestra. We are participating and singing in a choir. All of us, even if you don't sing, learn those choir parts, those, those sung parts, that are the same every week and allow the specialist choir, choir members to focus on the stuff that changes regularly so that you are able to say <coughs> without thinking about it prayers like our heavenly king that they trip off the tongue so they become part of your very soul and this is perhaps much more important nowadays as people begin to experience dementia more and more and more because remembering those things, we have a priest amongst our congregation who suffers from vascular dementia, and he will get very ill and forget everything that he is doing. He will forget whether he's made a cup of tea or not, and get really frustrated with himself because he can't remember what it is that he's forgotten. But you put him in front of the holy table and say, get on with the divine liturgy, he will do it immaculately, faultlessly, because he has celebrated the divine liturgy boringly 
for 25 years. Day in, day out, more than just us because he's a monk. Those ingrained patterns of behaviour become our very soul, become our very identity. And therefore, when we come to divine liturgy, we're not just coming to sing a few hymns and say thank you to Jesus, but we are participating in a story. We are transfiguring our very soul through the divine liturgy. We are coming together as disparate people from different congregations, different experiences, different cultures, and we become absolutely vitally one people. Not many people, but one people, the family of God. So as we get to this point, we should all pause in our headlong rush towards something, whatever it is that we are rushing towards. Pause before <coughs> the Holy Temple, before the Holy Table, and say, Lord, you have revealed to us this great mystery of salvation. You have counted us useless, unworthy human beings. You have counted us worthy not just to be here at church, but to minister to you, to minister to your holy table, to bring you us, to bring to you our useless little gifts of bread and wine and beeswax. We bring ourselves broken and tearful and sometimes joyful sometimes boisterous but we bring our unworthy selves to you and the miracle of all miracles is that you O oh God deem us worthy to do so the Lord our God you reveal to us this great mystery of salvation in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen